0: Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we're speaking with Brett Horley, founding partner of BHS Safaris. Brett is a native of South Africa where he currently lives. He has nearly 20 years of experience in the bush and has guided tours across much of the continent. Brett's belief in education as part of a sustainable solution for the protection of wildlife led him to become involved in the training of guides in South Africa, Botswana, and Tanzania. He ran a highly successful education program in a few rural South African schools, teaching skills and promoting tourism as a career path for many young students a number of whom now work for prestigious luxury lodges in the Greater Kruger National Park in South Africa. In today's episode, we'll discuss one topic that we have not yet covered in Voices of Nature, the intersection of tourism and conservation, and another topic that is aligned with the mission of GCC, educating young people about the careers that protect and promote nature. Brett, welcome to Voices of Nature.
1: Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you very much. It's it's great to be here. It really
0: is. Well, you have a fascinating background, so, and certainly my, my introduction didn't do justice to all of the amazing work you've done. So talk to us a little bit about what life was like growing up in South Africa and, you know, what led you to a, a career in conservation as, as a guide and and the founder and owner of BHS Safaris.
1: Yeah, I think um, it has been quite a journey and, and, and what a, you know, what an upbringing, I think, to 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 kind of start, obviously, I was mostly outdoors rather than indoors. And my grandparents really had a passion for for nature, for wildlife, for dogs. But they were going to the Kruger Park from a very long time ago. You know, that was about 60, 70 years ago to the Kruger National Park. And that kind of filtered through to my father, who was a very, very, very passionate uh, bird watcher and, and naturalist. And then filtered through to to us. I think, you know, even now today, actually, we live here in the Kruger National Park this morning. There's been a lot of rains. The girls of two young daughters. They couldn't get to school this morning because the river is up in front of us. And, you know, we're out and playing in the water and looking at the frogs coming past and the tortoises have come out because of all the rain. And, you know, again, I think that's then now onto that, that fourth generation. I grew up about two hours outside of Johannesburg in the nature. You know, most of my time apart from being at school was outside was was catching snakes was finding birds nests was was collecting uh, quills and feathers and stones and rocks and and you know at that stage i didn't really realize this was going to be my lifelong career but it was certainly always my passion you know we you know uh, i had a dog we used to go out and look for snakes and catch them i mean i don't know what the reason was to be honest now in hindsight but you know, we uh, my dog died in our arms. Got bitten by a snake called a rinkals Kind of dug out of a hole. But that was our passion. You know, it was our passion for nature and to be outdoors and learning. And and now um, that's kind of what directed me in, in, into this. You know, by the time I was about sixteen, I knew I really wanted to be in in conservation. And it was that growing up outside and, and going on holidays to to national parks and and this influenced a lot from my father, who was you know a very key naturalist.
0: So just talk to us a little bit about, you know, BHS safaris, you know, what life is like, you know, as a guide in a safari company, you know, what's the intent behind bringing people into nature? Kind of what's the desire behind creating a a safari company?
1: So, and I I think there's two parts to that question. Number one, and the real desire, you know, I've, I've, I've always been super passionate about the outdoors and about insects and birds and mammals and 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 actually a lot of you know i get asked this question all the time like what drives you and i can't really explain it apart from the fact of when i'm outside and when i'm in nature i'm happy and i see that with people where i facilitated these experiences from you know when i was 18 to today when i'm 37 and it's not a tangible thing that people feel when they are in nature whether it's in kruger national park or yellowstone or on top of a mountain in cape town that that feeling of just being where you belong and 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 I think that's something that was always inside of me so I was lucky to follow this career and I think there's two parts of of the first part of the question which is you know being a guide is literally just living the dream I mean what a fantastic time of my life it was one where I was employed permanently by camps and lodges all over I lived in Tanzania I lived in Botswana and 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 I've spent You know, most of my time here in the Kruger National Park and from 18 years old, I was just driving around in this massive Land Rover, four by four, driving through the mud, getting stuck, carrying a big rifle, you know, literally living the dream and having a blast with people that 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 you get on really well with. And then, you know, tourists, so to speak, from both from South Africa and internationally all over the world coming out and jumping on the back of this Jeep and driving around and looking for animals. I mean, uh, it was, it's literally living the dream. I was fortunate to, to work for some really amazing companies, Singita. you know, one of the top brands on the continent, more hotels, Lataka Safaris in Botswana, you know, traveling through Botswana, 12 nights, mobile camping safaris, sleeping in the Okavango Delta at night in a tent, hearing the hippo, you know, grazing next to the tent, in the Sabi Sands opening, you know, my door in the morning to go to work, top was four and it's pitch dark, to get ready for game, rather than opening the door and finding a leopard literally looking up at me, wondering, you know, who are you and why did you just open this door? You know, I screamed so hard I actually lost my voice. You know, adventures and you know, swimming in the rivers and playing and making friends, meeting people from all over the world. So that was the first part of my career, and I digress a bit, was just living the dream. You know, young, having fun as a safari guide. There's a lot of books out there on it, and and, and it it couldn't be better. You you with a amazing bunch of people who you work with and we would work kind of six weeks on and two weeks off and in Botswana three months on and, and one month off so you're out there immersed and you live with these people and form amazing relationships which are still you know around today I met my wife in 2007 in one of these lodges I then as you grow decided to become independent and start my own business and really I think that's where I really started to become passionate about it you know and probably in my late 20s, I mean, I was being very eco-conscious, so to speak, and again, that was kind of instilled from school and and, and growing up, but I became very conscious of like these places that i have been so lucky for 10 years to, to, to live in were under massive threat, you know, from mostly from the burgeoning human population and these wild spaces. not able to protect themselves and the pressure from humans is all around just pushing in and pushing in and pushing in and and the realization that these wild spaces have to be protected and in selfishly in order for me to enjoy them and, and for my family to enjoy them and then over and above that economically i can make some money out of it but it's also super beneficial for tourism because it's really the only way to protect these places now and you know it's a tough thing to say but that is the reality so i became you know really conscious of okay i can make this into a career i can start my own business and i believe that 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 tourism done the right way in africa which it really is is a very very vital cog in this wheel of of protecting these wild spaces i mean you know we'll probably get into it a bit more but and i truly believe in in ecotourism as a facilitator of protecting Africa's wild spaces. And today, not only Africa, but the, the planet, you know, whether it's marine or land. Yeah, so
0: let's go a little deeper on that, Brett, because in a way, I heard you make a couple of contradictory statements where you were talking about the pressure on nature and you know the pressure that human encroachment is putting on nature, yet you spoke about the, the benefits of tourism and bringing people into nature. So how do you balance those two things? Because one could argue, the more you bring people into nature, the more you are putting pressure on nature.
1: Absolutely. And and it is, you know, it is, as you say, it's a very, very fine balance. It really is. And there's a couple of different models that have been, you know, let's stick to Africa and what I know and what I've lived and traveled throughout sub-Saharan Africa in, in these different ecotourism models. Um and, you know, there, there is definitely over-tourism. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I think, you know, there's certain places in, in Africa where you have over-tourism. You have too many people Um there are regulations, but they are not enforced. So sometimes the problem is maybe not the too many people, the people, number of, of tourists in there might be okay, but the regulations are not enforced and poor regulations and poor guiding, unethical companies Re- results in in detrimental effects on the environment you know on the plants on the trees on the mammals on the mm-hmm. infrastructure places are not looking after the sewage after the the waste etc and probably the the big thing that people see out there is you know the animals getting harassed and having a negative reaction but 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 it's more about the impact in terms of sewage and infrastructure and, and natural resources for me now on the other side of it, you know, to me, and this is personal, the fact of the matter is, the wild places in Africa, the pristine natural habitat, cannot survive without generating money. There's, there's no other way around it. So, an an area of a hundred thousand acres, or you know, some of these places are way bigger than that. But let's just call it that: an area of hundred thousand acres of pristine forest in West Africa, or savannah in East Africa, or part of the Kruger Park if that 100,000 acres is not generating money and is not benefiting the people who are outside of those protected areas and not making somebody money and not paying for itself to be there it will, it cannot survive that's the end of the story so either you have to have a donor who kind of buys that place or sustains it and you're talking about millions of dollars for a piece of land that size or you have to have an economy there in order to pay for itself. It's a sad reality, and we've seen it all over, where as soon as areas are not generating money, they get destroyed. People want the trees for coal. They want the land and the soil for agriculture. They want the water for agriculture. They want the water for living. They want the water for mining. And then just general the land and space for people to live. The majority of the African population will look at at the parks like Kruger National Park, Okavango Delta, the Serengeti, and say, why on earth should we keep this massive space for some animals to walk around? You know that that is the reality, and 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 without these places making money and paying for themselves, there's absolutely no ways they can be protected. You know, pretty conscientious subject, but and we see it. I see it all over Africa in the in the hunting concessions. So over the years, hunting has become less and less popular throughout the world. Very contentious issue, and there are areas in Mozambique and Botswana where I've seen personally. Hunting has has been banned by governments. And because there are not hunters going into those areas and paying dollars, those areas are being destroyed and they they are not protected and they've been taken over for just general human use. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong or that people shouldn't be doing it. But if you want to protect Africa's last wild spaces, and they are the very, very last wild spaces, they have to generate money. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to kind of say there. Let me just touch on a couple of models. So you've got mass tourism is an issue, but it's a very small issue and only in, in a few parks in Africa because air access into Africa is not huge. Access into these parks is not easy. So you don't just get hundreds of thousands of people rocking up because it's not easy to get to these places. And it is a it is a rich man's game. You know, it's not just anybody who can go on safari. And then where you can, it's difficult to access. You also have countries now like Rwanda and Botswana, which have tourism models called high-income, low-impact. So they charge a huge amount of money for very few people to come in. And it's a great model. It's phenomenal because of 90 people going to see the gorillas in Rwanda on a specific day, each paying 1500 $1,500, you make $100,000 a day from gorilla permits. There are obviously loads of expenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the gist of it. Charge people a lot of money, have very few people, 90 people into that part of Volcanoes National Park on any given day, and you make a truckload of money. Botswana has it as well. The thing is, obviously, then it's not accessible to a lot of people. But the areas are very well protected and the, and the environmental ministries, the governments, the tourism ministries are making a a bucket lot of money to protect the places.
0: Well, that brings up a very good point. And it's something that has been an area of focus of GCC is you know these vast socioeconomic disparities yeah. when it comes to the access to nature, to these parks. And that there are so many people living in and around these parks that never get to experience nature because they can't afford these high-end trips into the park. How do you rectify that? I mean, to me, that's, that is just a tragedy, right? If if you live near one of these parks, and yet you can't experience nature because it's unaffordable to you. And therefore, you don't feel invested in helping to protect nature. And therefore, you're more likely to do all the things you talked about in terms of encroaching on the habitats, and and frankly, just using nature to survive.
1: Not correct.
0: How do we start to, I guess, address these disparities and allow more people into nature without, again, to your previous points, putting too much pressure on nature.
1: And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's and that's where, you know, I, I've just found a real synergy with GCC, Global Conservation Corps, who, who, who you know, one of the main things is to get children into the Kruger National Park. Let's come back to like my home ground and my home territory and where I'm sitting right now there's a massive disparity, what we call inside the fence and outside the fence. So along the western boundary of Kruger National Park is a 200-mile fence from north to south. And on the eastern side of the fence, you've got animals running around, and you've got very high-end luxury lodges with very wealthy people driving around in the back of Jeeps and sipping gin and tonic and eating seven-course meals and loving their safaris. You also, fortunately, in the Kruger Park, do have you know Kruger National Park, and South Africa has access for the you know middle-income person in the country can certainly afford to go in there and have a great safari. There's no doubt about that. Self-drive, drive yourself. Specials for local residents, etc. Inside the Kruger National Park, anybody can in, in South Africa can really go in there. The problem is on the western side of this fence, you actually have very, very low income. You've got unemployment rates in these two provinces or states of over 30%. You've got a lot of poverty. And apart from the things that I've talked about, now you've got, as you say, using nature to survive, which, which is, I want to I I catch the fish and I want to eat them. And why not? Why should I not? And I agree with that. If I've been living in this area for the last 10,000 years and everybody in my family, in my lineage, has been catching the fish out of this river, why on earth should I not? and eat them and survive, you know, why should that be poaching? There's obviously subsistence poaching where I'm doing it for myself or there's commercial poaching and I'm going in and catching dirty fish and selling them. And that maybe is a different story, but the fact of the matter is they're my resources, you know, and now I'm not allowed to do that, but I don't get any benefits from that person going on a boat and looking at the birds and looking at the fish and having a good time. I get zero economic benefits. You know, when I'm talking about I, I'm not talking about You know a local citizen outside of the park who's who's literally on one side of the fence on the other side is the elephants and on this side is you you can't find a job prospects are very very difficult massively swelling population in the last decade massively and although every lodge and every company and that has got these programs going on to try and expose children and people to the wildlife invest in them a passion for nature and then the want to try and protect these areas, but the lodges in the industry are not doing enough. And that's the end of the story. And that's where you have to have NPO's and NGOs and et cetera, non-profits like, like GCC, who now take it upon themselves to try and get as many children into the park as they can. And probably one of my favorite programs is is the game drives for kids. I mean, it's 250 Rand. It's, it's, it's not even $25. It's even less. It's you know, today it's for $18 to sponsor one child to go on a game drive. And I cannot tell you, you know, we use this all the time, but they have never seen a lion or an elephant. And yet they live within five miles of of the Kruger National Park. And they haven't been afforded the opportunity. And why would I not poach a rhino and cut its horn off and sell it if if I'm living five miles from in the Kruger Park and I've never been inside and I've never seen a rhino walking around and I've never had that, that feeling burn inside me. So, you know, programs or uh, one is to expose children and not only children, but also grannies, you know, Elephants Alive have got a program now, Gogos, which is, which is grannies in, in, in the local language. And, and uh, it's women of sixties of and seventies who they're taking into the reserves to be exposed to these things. And hopefully they can then pass this down. But, you know, most importantly for me is children. Children need to be exposed. One, go in there, see an elephant, see a lion, see a bird, chase a beetle like I did when I was six or seven, get that fire burning. And then as you 12 and 13 and 14 and 17 and 18 start thinking about a career in tourism because, you know, the children and and the teenagers sitting in this area are faced with unemployment rates of 30%. And no other industry in these areas apart from tourism, but within tourism are seriously great opportunities to create a career, a real, real good career. But it's never been quite as romantic or alluring or fancy as Going to Johannesburg and being a lawyer or being a football star or being a musician or, you know, a lawyer, doctor, accountant, policeman. These are very popular and I've seen it in the programs that we do in the local communities. You know, being a a field ranger or a game ranger or a field guide or a lodge manager is not as alluring because they don't know what it is and they don't know the lifestyle and they don't know the opportunities that are provided. So let me just end off there. There's two things. One, get the children in there when they're young and not enough is being done to do that. Everybody's got a little program, but honestly, it's not enough. A lot of the proceeds from the big high end lodges inside the parks is not going back to the communities. A percentage is, it's all going out to the owners who live in other countries or in big cities. And you know, with with the history of the country and the continent, nobody growing up here thinks that it's a great career or opportunity to be working in. Take them in, expose them to the wildlife, and then convince them that your career and the opportunity to work in these lodges is massive. Because when you're 35, you could be earning a great, great salary. You have a lifelong career five miles from your home, and you can send your kids to school and really then start that cycle. Yeah, you see, I'm getting on a bit of a tangent. No, that, that is great. I love it. So then now drawing
0: upon your your career as an educator, in addition to your career as a safari and guide and natural expert, you know, what does a course curriculum in a school look like to educate the students about nature, give them the skills for nature? I mean, once you have the once you have the fire lit, how do you sustain that in the classroom so that they have the base of knowledge needed to have a successful career in nature?
1: And I think, you know, again, you know, just to put in context, you know, Africa and, and we bunch all of these countries together. But let's just talk about South Africa. And, and you know, it's third world. And, and, and when I talk about that, it's more about the education system. So to look at the United States and what a 14 year old is doing in their class and to look at a government school or a government funded school in the local communities here, there is very little budget. There are 40 to 50, sometimes more students in a classroom. You go into the schools now, it's still, you know, it's whiteboard and whiteboard marker and the electricity goes off and you got one teacher teaching four different subjects. And it's tough. It's it's real tough conditions. So the curriculum is there, but the resources are not there. And, and nobody, you know, again, it's like absurd because there's no laptops, there's no computers, there's no digitization. You, know, you can't just access Google in your classroom or have access to screens and TVs. And, and never mind that these children should be just learning on computers only, you know, it's very old school. So the good thing now is that you can do tourism in high school as a subject, and it's very popular actually here in the high schools. But are you getting practical experience? Are you getting opportunities to go out and be in these lodges and know that your opportunities as a young woman are chef, spa therapist, accounting, administration, guiding, you know, these are five amazing careers which are sitting on your doorstep but you've never been exposed to them so you don't understand them. And the great thing is young men and women can grow up in these areas and can go and start working in a kitchen in a seven star lodge with zero formal qualifications But in seven years' time, you can be cooking fine-dining Michelin-quality food. You know, that is the great thing about the industry is that often you you can go in and, and be successful on practical skills and experience. The curriculum is there. The tourism curriculum is good. Environmental education is fair, but the resources are not there. And the education system is under huge, huge pressure. There's not enough teachers. There's not enough resources. And again, GCC has got programs like the Future Rangers program. It's gold. It, it is what has to happen. Is and now again, it's the fact that outside organisations have to be or have to feel the need to go into these schools and and provide environmental education, provide environmental facilitators, give these children opportunities to and not only visit the Kruger Park but visit the canyons and the waterfalls and the you know any natural area which needs to be protected and. Yeah, I think the curriculum's there, but the resources are not. And there are a lot of environmental education facilities out here who are trying their best to do it on the kind of private side and going into the schools and doing that thing. But often it's more as an extramural. And again, just to put it in context, these children, you know, they're walking to school. They the parents don't have any extra money to send them on a field trip or outings or, you know, we raise money to get a vehicle to take the children into Kruger. The the resources are not there.
0: So, really, the interim solution, given the scarcity of resources at the should we just say the governmental level, being dedicated to education, are these extracurricular activities, extramural activities, as you mentioned, such as you know the Future Rangers program by GCC, where these outside organizations are coming in and essentially creating curriculums or programs that sit on top of. Their school curriculum is that is that a fair assessment?
1: Exactly, a hundred percent. You know, whether it's a a wildlife club or a hiking club or in Green Kids Initiative or you know the Future Rangers program. Exactly.
0: Shifting gears now a little bit, Brett. Let's maybe take the conversation to a more inspirational level. We've we've talked a lot mm-hmm. of about some really really serious issues, but you've you've given us some snippets of your amazing experiences in nature so i would ask you to share with us your most special moment in nature that that one moment when you close your eyes at night and you think of nature it's it's that moment that comes to your mind i would love to love to know what that is given you've literally spent you know well over 30 years in nature every single day
1: wow um i mean that is a tough one you know because I have, and uh, I mean, you know, disclaimer is that like I love every minute out of the out there, whether it's raining, or it's a hundred Fahrenheit or we're bumping along on some dusty road, or you know, just being out there and, and, and feeling free. Like, you know, a lot of people from all over the world will come out there and it, there's an unexplainable feeling when you sit around the fire on your last evening. You just, a lot of people will say, wow, I feel like I belong. And that's, that's always interesting. I think probably one of my greatest wildlife encounters was certainly with the mountain gorillas, which are in Uganda and, and Rwanda. You know, I've done gorilla trekking quite a few times. And there's just this feeling, you know, you go up into the jungles there, trek up, the mountain for an hour or two sometimes more than that and it's muddy and the trackers have been up early uh you know an hour earlier and they're kind of cutting with machetes through the forest and following where the gorillas were yesterday these gorillas you know at one stage there were less than 500 mountain gorillas left in the wild on the planet their habitat cannot grow anymore in, in Uganda and in Rwanda and in the Democratic Republic of Congo the habitat is now totally surrounded 360 degrees you they cannot get bigger the population right now is cannot grow bigger because the space is not big enough so although the gorilla population is growing it's actually a, pop, a problem because there's nowhere for them to go anyway being there you know the last great primates on the planet and 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 we we have a connection with these things and you know climbing up there and and having that first encounter or experience with gorillas that I ever had in my life. And even now, you know, last year in August, I was there and I'll be up there again, um, a couple of times this year. When you sit for an hour with these with these massive, massive animals who have become habituated to people and accept you in, in this space on foot, just sitting there and carrying on with their daily lives. One is and why don't we trust everybody like this? And why are we humans different to this in so many ways? And but but looking into that animal's eyes and seeing a connection, feeling like we're the same thing, seeing, seeing the similarities between us and and these these great apes, which you know in those areas you you also get chimpanzees and have, have the same feeling. But I think sitting and looking at, at at gorillas and being three meters away, and this young gorilla comes up and looks at you, and you have a connection with an animal that you feel that you actually are the same um, is one of my most special wildlife encounters, I would say, and it repeats itself every time I'm up there with the gorillas. And maybe not in the moment because you're like locked in in that moment, but later that afternoon you sit and you just think, "Wow, that is me, and I am it." Incredibly powerful. But as I said, it's hard to isolate one instance. And you know, recently I was in Mozambique and we're on a boat in the middle of paradise. And these dolphins are just you know we are sitting on the front of the boat and you you know it's really it's pristine there and it's 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 not often you get into the ocean and, and it's really pristine the marine life is properly protected and these dolphins are coming up and literally playing with us on the bow of the boat and swimming and coming underneath and back and forth and i think that also was you know recently was what a moment having these you know just flying through the water and these dolphins you know, I was actually with Matt, actually, crazily enough. And, you know, Matt, and there was another young woman there, Kayla, and she turned around. And she's like, I felt like that dolphin was my friend. And, you know, you can't beat something like that. You, you really, really can't.
0: That's really two really special experiences. Uh, thank you. But I, I have to ask, what happened when you came face to face with that leopard outside your tent? <laughs>
1: No, I mean, it was quite a story, to be honest, you know, and actually what happened was, it was, you know, in the Sabi Sand, the leopards are pretty used to where the camps are, and they will actually walk right through it, so the, and the fact of the matter was, it was pitch dark, half past four in the morning, and um and where was this, what, what park was this? It's Kruger National Park, but a part of the Kruger National Park called the Sabi Sand, which is... Just an area between two rivers, the Sabi and the Sand River, and and it's world famous for leopard viewing. But the the leopard got as much of a fright as I did because you know in 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 Hanson, so it was four o'clock, four past four in the morning. I was still wiping the the dust out of my eyes, you know, kind of still waking up, going to prepare the vehicle and and make coffee for the guests and wake them up in about half an hour and prepare some snacks and then go out on on morning safari and um. Actually, it was a female leopard with with cubs and And so she actually wasn't right at the door. what what happened was and and she obviously got as much of a fright as I did. and because she was wandering along with her two two cubs in the darkness in the very early morning, not expecting action in that area, if you know what I mean. And so when I opened the door in the pitch darkness and and I had a, a head torch on, you know the leopard was probably about like, 15 feet away, but because I'd suddenly opened the door and it was, it was an aggressive kind of action from me unbeknown to me, you know, and unbeknown to me, there was a leopard. She, she literally came charging straight at me and ended up kind of three feet away, not, not more than three feet away. And she was growling. And um, I just actually froze, I froze. She froze, and then I screamed as, as as loud as I could in, like, an aggressive manner to try and get her to move off because I'd then seen the two cubs behind her. Now, all she was doing was protecting the cubs and telling me, hey, back off, buddy. Mm-hmm. She felt like at four uh, 4.30 a.m. in the morning in the pitch dark, me suddenly coming out of a out of door, and it was. It was in very... Of course she felt threatened she felt like her cubs were threatened i screamed so loud that i, I you know honestly i lost my voice that day so my voice uh, whatever i did i hurt my vocal cords so you know i screamed so loud at her in an aggressive manner and actually another another guide was about 50 meters away 60 meters away at a, at a vehicle and he came driving over when he when he heard my scream but by then the leopard had actually backed off and you know she didn't uh you know she was not going to attack me in that moment but she came very close and and aggressively to say hey leave me and my cubs alone which i which i I respected but i i think at that stage you know moving even backwards or back into the door would have been you know a dangerous move for me so that was that face to face with the leopard in the morning a female leopard uh, the raven's called female we called her and uh you know i sound very brave now but but uh Uh, You know, I'm not even joking. I was, I was shot afterwards. I was not okay afterwards. I will say that it's funny now. It wasn't funny (laughs) then. I mean,
0: I want to bring together maybe all the all the topics that we've talked about in this conversation in in one of these few remaining questions. And so, you just you shared these just so special moments in nature. And those those are the moments that as we talked about, really, everyone should have the right to experience, maybe not coming face to face with a leopard, but have, you know, everyone should have that moment where they just connect with nature. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. Not everyone is, you know, fortunate enough or even interested enough to become a, a ranger or a field guide or a scientist. So what are some ways that, you know, we can experience nature in a personal way that doesn't involve either a career in nature, career in conservation, or flying to Africa to go on one of these amazing safaris? Like what are just some ways, again, that all of us can experience nature?
1: You know, it's a really good question. And I just believe, you know, nature is on every everybody's doorstep. And once you're in tune with it you know often people have come out on safari and gone back to the uk or France states and then you know we've we've been out on safari and they've kind of are amazed at how in tune we are with nature and the calls of the birds and the alarm calls of the squirrels but they've gotten in tune with it and they've gone home and they've emailed me and said wow you won't believe it i heard the birds in my garden and they were chattering and chattering and chattering. And I thought to myself after our experience in Botswana, wow, it looks like the birds are upset. And I went over there and there was an owl sitting in the tree and the other birds were all along calling at it. And I think, you know, the, the amazing thing was like once they been, you'd been exposed and kind of opened yourself up to being in tune with it, you started to like get these little rewards and gifts from nature, which then inspires you to do more and read more and learn more and, and things i think nature is on everybody's doorstep and 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 locking eyes with a young mountain gorilla or a ginormous silverback is as good as getting out on a mountain or going and sitting and watching a waterfall i think you know again this morning that the one thing that reminded me was like water you know and, and and rivers and waterfalls are as powerful as any lion or leopard or, or, or tiger or cheetah in terms of sit and and let them envelop you and 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 let yourself be free and be inspired by nature in the wilderness. And it's going to make you feel good. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you want to protect the places, but it's just going to, you know, I find it soothes, it heals, it helps, whether it's, you know, sitting next to a river and thinking about grief or thinking about a good thing or thinking about a bad thing or thinking about business, it, it helps me to, to suit a botanical garden, a hike, a mountain, a waterfall. So so my one thing is expose yourself to nature. It's on, on your doorstep in every country and every continent. And even in the big cities, you know, there are peregrine falcons flying around every big city on the planet hunting and doing their thing. Yeah, I don't know if that is makes sense or not.
0: It does. And so that brings me to my my final question, which is, despite the fact that nature is on our doorstep, no matter where you live, despite the fact that there are Countless people like you and others working every day to protect nature, as we touched on very early in the conversation, arguably nature has never been under greater threat or greater risk as it is today. Mm. And that threat doesn't appear to be lessening anytime soon, if, if we're honest about that. Yeah. Yet there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful that over time and sooner rather than later that that threat starts to abate. I mean, why, why are you hopeful that that is, in fact, the case?
1: you know, we have to be, I think, I think I've, I've been fortunate to see some amazing success stories in Africa as well, you know, we talk about this and that, but, you know, corridors opening up young people from very poor communities growing up and having amazing careers in wildlife and making money and living the dream and having fun and raising their children, sending them to school and university. I think there are success stories or there are are programs, initiatives and people making a difference and a positive impact. And, you know, obviously I think the main thing is we have to protect these places for the the next generation, but also for the survival of our own good. We need nature, not not only for, for wilderness and to feel good, but we need the oxygen, we need the water. You know there's, there's there's no two ways about that so we don't really have a choice we have to protect these places and there are a lot of people doing a lot of good i think by supporting organizations like gcc like african parks by visiting wild spaces which are and using ethical operators you are contributing to the protection of those wild spaces and i'm not just saying that because i am an operator but by, by by going to the Pantanal or Bandhavgarh in India or the Akavango Delta or Kruger National Park and going through sustainable and ethical operators, you are contributing to protection of those places. And it's vital. So you're getting enjoyment out of it and contributing. And I think, you know, also every single person, there's, there's this whole thing of... You know over and above that is is and again because portion of your safari is conservation levies and fees to the parks, which pays for staff and protection and animals. And a lot of people don't realize that. You know, a big percentage of your safari actually goes to directly to conservation levies and fees. Over and above that, I think there's this whole thing, and I'm a big believer in like every person can make a small difference every day. And although it seems like insurmountable and you know, just um you know, being on the ocean again two weeks ago, you know the plastic story and the stuff in the ocean was was horrific, and a, and a good reminder. You know, there's, there's, there's litter there, and you look at it, and they've done research, and it comes from Indonesia, and the actual things are from eight years ago. With, you know, the production dates or the expiry dates on these cans or bottles or whatever, whatever it is, and it just really hit me again that each person in their individual life, by living more sustainably, by using less water, less electricity, less plastic, every single day of their lives, 365 days a year, I use one less plastic piece of plastic, I save one kilowatt of energy, I, you know, create less carbon, whatever it might be. I do that 365 days a year for 37 years, I start to have a huge impact and so does everybody. So, you know, picking up one piece of litter, recycling, any any sustainable choice. If, if every person can make one sustainable choice every single day, it really, really does start to make a difference. Might not feel like it right now, but it really does. And we don't have the choice but to start doing that, you know, as of yesterday.
0: Brett, that was the best way possible to end this conversation. Those are words that all of us need to live by. And It is talk about a practical way forward. That is it right there. So both not only practical, but inspirational. So thank you for that. I really, really appreciate that. And I really appreciate this conversation. It's been so enjoyable and and really entertaining. I appreciate your
1: time. What a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Thanks so much for having me and and for what you guys do. and, And, you know, being a voice of nature, we need more people like that in the world. So thank you very much. Well, it is our pleasure. Take care and thank you. Awesome.
0: Go, 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 go!